0: This podcast contains discussions about mental health and may contain discussions about suicide and self harm. If you or somebody that you know is experiencing distress or is in immediate danger, dial 000 or call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. Also, if you believe that someone you love is experiencing a mental health issue, please encourage them to go and talk to their GP as soon as possible thanks very much for listening hello folks and welcome to episode 63 how you going mate podcast adam is my name and uh, this podcast, for those of you that are listening for the first time, this podcast is about mental health and well-being, and we record this. Uh, we get people to tell us their stories about their, their mental health and, more importantly, how they manage their mental health conditions uh, and how they continue to manage their mental health conditions, but we do this in the hope that there's somebody out there listening who you know, feels like they're alone, feels like no one will understand, feels like they're the only person that feels the way they are, and will hear what we're saying and hopefully feel less alone, hopefully feel... Like, maybe if that person can do that, maybe I can do it as well. And I had this, uh, you know, great conversation a couple of weeks ago with somebody who was saying that they're doing some, you know, do some mental health workshops and um, they've literally had people come up and say, I thought I was the only person that feels the way I do. I thought no one else felt like this. It's, you know, been enlightening to know that there are other people that feel the way I do and I'm not the only one. So um, that's an incredible thing and hopefully the people that listen to us hear that and get that as well. Uh speaking of which um I want to say a big thank you to Laura who was our last guest. Uh, Laura's episode uh set well not set a new record for the the latest group of episodes. We're we slowly building back up our numbers and our audience and and it was fantastic to have great response and speaking of great response Laura got some incredible feedback. As is often the case with these things we don't get the feedback sent to us. We get the guests get the feedback their friends and their family and the people that listen to it send them the feedback and let them know what they thought. And um, Laura got some incredible feedback, so I'm I'm really, um, really chuffed that she got that great positive reinforcement, but also that people kind of liked what we did and loved, loved her story. Um, so a big thank you to Laura, and um, I feel fortunate to call you my friend because you're you're amazing. Uh, and speaking of people that listen, uh, we do have a wonderful core group of people that listen all over Australia. We literally, these last few episodes have been listened to all over Australia, Adelaide, Brisbane, everywhere, Victoria, just amazing, Canberra, it's brilliant. Um, We do get listened to internationally as well, which still blows my mind, and of course we celebrated our 15,000th listen during the the last fortnight as well, which is amazing. But we get listened to internationally, and we had Brazil and Germany and Vanuatu, Port Vila is one of my favourite places in the world, so... It's wonderful to be listened to in those places and to know that there are people hopefully listening to what we do and relating to it and getting something out of it. So big thank you to all of you that listen, particularly those of you that are listening in Richardson and Ashburn in the US and, of course, uh, Saint-Germain-en-Laye in France. Um, the, the, it blows you guys. The people that listen in those places listen to every episode and they're usually amongst the first people to listen. And that just blows my mind. Thank you so much for your support, genuinely from the bottom of my heart. It means so much to me that you listen to every episode, and I really appreciate that you're out there. So, with that having all been said, and and we appreciate everyone else as well, um, but we, you know, it's just really cool to know that there are people that are listening every single week, and some of you do, and I know that, and we talk about that. And thank you so much for your support as well. So, on to this week's guest, and this week's guest is Amy, and Amy, Amy's story is incredible. Uh, Amy got in contact with me. We have a mutual friend. We did a call out for podcast guests, and she got in contact with me and said, Hey, this is my story. Would you be interested? And we had a conversation, and her story is mind blowing. Um, she's had this incredible journey with her mental health and her mental health conditions. Um, You're here in the episode. I don't need to give too much away at the top, but. Um, it really it really is. She, she, when she first contacted me, she was like, um, I feel like this is a little bit too intense. Should I, should I dial it down? And I was like, no, give it to us, both barrels, we're cool. Uh, it is it really, because ultimately what this is about, it's not about the really terrible stuff that happened. Ultimately, what we want to do is focus on how you are managing that now. Amy is now seven months sober. She has this new perspective on life, this new lease on life which is really incredible. She says six months in the... I I, I think we talk about it in the thing, but she's now seven months sober. She's got this incredible new lease on life, um, this great new perspective. We think very similar on a lot of things, which was really interesting and really cool to talk to her about. But um, this is very much a story about, I guess, redemption. And she's... I guess when you think about people who shouldn't have a mental health condition, you know, successful, intelligent, you know articulate, attractive, funny, you know, Amy is that person and, um, you know, this is the thing that often stops us from getting help with our mental health conditions because there's almost a part of us that feels like we don't have a right to have a mental health condition because everything else in our life is so good but of course it doesn't matter if everything else is so good if your mental health isn't and, and I think that's probably the message at the core of this story Uh, amongst a whole range of other messages but the story is incredible, the messages are incredible, Amy's life has been incredible and I just a big thank you to Amy for sharing with us and hopefully you guys get something out of this, if you love what you hear please share it, please let other people know about it but most importantly uh, at the end of the episode go out and ask somebody how you going mate and check in on somebody if you're worried about them, so without further ado, uh, let's ask Amy the question Amy, how you going mate? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm. Um, it's raining and it's lockdown, and um, I'm sitting looking out my window at a really lovely view of the trees in the rain, and um, things are pretty good.
0: That, it, it's, it's oddly um, calming. People often talk. People get annoyed with the rain and they talk talk about it being bad weather. And I'm like, mm. there's no bad weather. It's just weather.
1: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah Yeah, it's 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 just it's different we've had some lovely warm days and um and the rain's kind of rewarding in a way it gives me permission to sort of sit back and relax a bit
0: (laughs) i also feel like this weather actually probably more accurately describes the mood of sydney at the moment (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah yeah give us a reason to stay give us another reason to stay inside
1: yeah, that's that's a good point. Everyone can snuggle down today and um and not feel guilty that they're not out enjoying the sunshine. Yeah,
0: exactly. Or or not even guilty, just like feel like you've been ripped off like, "Oh man, look how nice it yeah. is out there." <laughs> I have some friends that live in um live in Utah and uh mm. she describes Utah in um in winter time as white hell because uh, <laughs> it just snows, it's horrible, you know. Wow. And so you post these beautiful photos and she's Australian, she grew up here in Sydney. But you post mm. these beautiful photos, like of an August winter's day where it's sunny and it's twenty six degrees, and people are wearing shorts and t shirts. And she's yeah. like, you know, oh man, I wish I was. This is times like this I was wish I was in Sydney. I'm stuck in this white hell. And you're like, yeah, yeah. I,
1: we're pretty lucky here. I think that, um, we're in the perfect sort of climate. I think um, yeah. even the even the hot hot of summer and we get some really cold days but we get a good balance
0: throughout the year yeah i always say to people though that there's basically four days every year that are perfect like it's either too hot too cold too wet too windy but (laughs) a few days every year you're just like no this is good actually this is good (laughs) (laughs) this is nice (laughs) now um there's, there's a couple of standard questions we always ask and and obviously this is a mental health podcast so we love um to hear people's stories, but I always, I always start with the question, um, what, does, what does mental health mean to you? What do you think of when you hear that term, mental health?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think the most fascinating sentence I've heard in a long time um, was from a psychiatrist and um, he said, mental health, um, sorry, connection is the greatest predictor of uh, mental health. And I guess that speaks volumes at this time because I had to really think about that um, you know isolation um, is the opposite i guess to connection and um and when we're connected to each other and and nature and life um, you know that that predicts strong mental health um, you know and and I guess mental health for me um, has been an a challenge throughout my life um, and it wasn't something I had words for until recently. Mm. Um, I just thought something was wrong with me, deeply wrong with me for a long time and um, coming to understand what what mental health um, should look like <laughs> um, and not the acceptance of, um, of that sort of deep feeling of being wrong has been a, a real freedom
0: would you say something was wrong with you? I mean, what what did that look like for you? What what were you sort of, what were you thinking and feeling that made you go, this isn't right?
1: Yeah, um, well, I guess it took me, like, until I sort of, I didn't encounter <coughs> mental health services until I was um, about
2: 32,
1: 33. Okay. Um, I, I, as a child, I always had a sort of, large inner dialogue going on and, um, lots of diaries and, um, always, fe- I always felt different, um, uh, wrong, left out, unlovable. Um, you know, I had at times a challenging childhood. Um, uh, you know, I was overweight as a kid. I was bullied. Um, my parents' marriage broke down and, and it was volatile at home quite often. Mm. Um, I always, but from a very young age, I never felt like I quite fit in. And um, I, I guess I became um, hypervigilant maybe to that. Um, but but all the way from probably six years old, all the way through high school, um, I always was felt... Um, discontented by life um this constant sort of scanning for why um i i, I wasn't um i wasn't right in the world and mm-hmm. um and it, it sort of manifested in my 20s i started to have what we call amy's sort of weird periods <laughs> um and i'd have these periods of silence um and not being able to sort of really engage with people being really shut down. And, and what I understand also looking back as well as I've had chronic anxiety from, mm. from a little kid, which probably didn't, you know, my family reflect and say, I, they wouldn't have guessed that I was a, what appeared to be quite a happy kid, smiley. I had two younger sisters. I loved looking after them. Um, you know, I, I looked, I was, you know, the sort of chubby comedian, um, and you, you wouldn't have known, but if I look back at that internal world throughout the years, um, there was just constant anxiety and, and depression, particularly, that started in the teen years, I guess, and, and, and really sort of kicked in later on. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really, I think, you know... The words I heard later, in, in um, after sort of contacting mental health services, were that um, we can be restless, irritable, and discontent, and and those words really resonated with me.
0: Mm. And um, it's it's interesting. I was having a chat to someone the other day about sort of um, very similar experience, actually, and um, uh, she has some parallels in her stories in that um, she's a and and. I'd, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this. If you do, we'll take it out. Sure. But um, <laughs> she's a, a an alumni of South Pacific um, mm-hmm. as well, and and yep. she was sort of talking about um, a similar experience with anxiety, and and also again people kind of going like, "Hang on," but you are such a outgoing, boisterous woman, and mm. she was like, "Well, that's the that's the the anxiety response," you know. Rather mm. than show you my anxiety, what I try and do is is amplify this other part of my personality to completely mm. hide this anxiety response that I have and this this who I really am, or who I really feel like I am. And I was like, yeah, yeah I get that. I kind of get that. I can understand that. Um, was it something yeah. similar for you or was it different?
1: Yeah, yeah. I guess... Um i I feel like that there's um I feel like I spent my life trying to fill the gaps yeah so, um there was I guess there's a whole topic on toxic shame and that that shame that sort of um really uh, starts young I guess or started young for me and really informs some of those core beliefs that um I'm you know I remember really really feeling like I was worthless, um you know that unlovable narrative and so I became really. Um, like a good actor I guess I had many masks and I was Mm. able to sort of be that chameleon that um, that met what I perceived as the need in any relationship or situation so if that required me to um, be sort of chatty and funny um, or um, measured and professional um, I spent most of my time just trying to adapt so that I didn't it's kind of that primal drive to not be left out, you know, the, the straggler on the side of the herd because yeah. I was, I guess, highly sensitive to what made me different. And that came from this play that drove a lot of anxiety and, um, and that anxiety, you know, anxiety in itself is a, um, you know, a primal driver. It it helps us sort of save ourselves from danger. It, it kicks in that, um, that sort of reptilian fight or flight system, and, mm-hmm. and so it had it serves a really good function. But I guess for me, it it was always um uh, elevated more than I guess the normal response because I and what I've come to learn is I spent most of my life living in fear, and that fear. Um, drove that sort of that response of anxiety and made me highly sensitive to, um, you know, I've, I remember I always had a real vibe about other people's energy. So if I walked into work and everyone felt it felt sort of off or there was a bad mood, that really affected me. And I'd have to sort of if I didn't have to, so I've still got the language. I would feel this need to sort of lift everyone's mood up so that I'd feel okay. Mm. Um yeah, I think that's that, that anxiety has um I mean we all I think we all have it and the measure I guess with mental health is how much it affects your ability to function in day to day life and um you know that's ebbed and flowed over the years but um but you know it certainly increased with time. It didn't sort of those coping mechanisms that should kick in as you get older, as you learn to um sort of get your needs met yourself. Mm. Um as an adult, as a, you know, as a late, as a teen, um that didn't quite happen. And I sort of started to rely on these really maladaptive um, coping strategies. And, and it, yeah, it was quite painful.
0: Yeah. I, I love, um, we spoke last time we spoke, I, I'm totally on board with the primal driver stuff. I mm. don't think people give it enough credit at all. And, and I guess we're starting to see a lot more discussion around, you know, as you say, you know, ten thousand years ago, that anxiety response served us really well because if we were in a jungle somewhere and there was an animal about to eat us, well, we we needed to be able to respond to that and get away from that. Um, mm. You know, the modern modern equivalent is is you know we we're constantly being sort of triggered by some sort of anxiety response, whether it's a you know some sort of perception of danger, where, even if it's just you know a discussion at work with your boss about your workload. You know, there is still that reaction, mm. and and we're mm. constantly living in that state of you know. Ultra hyper awareness, um, yeah. which has to has to have an effect on us at some stage, you know? and 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 yeah, I'm really big fan. And I mean, you know, if we, in a very simplistic term, this is me kind of doing a bit of voodoo kind of psychology, but you know, I suspect that's why we're taking drugs and alcohols and gambling mm. and whatever else we're doing to try and shut out that anxiety response because we, you know, we don't know, as you say, we don't know how to do it, so we do all mm. those other maladaptive things.
1: Hmm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, that the discomfort that like when that primal, I mean, from what I've learned from being in treatment now for about five years, that when that primal sister system kicks in, it it shuts down a lot of core systems in the body as well, like digestion all this sort of center stuff that the, the mm-hmm. frontal lobe in the brain that does all that sort of executive planning for us. It's, you know, laying down memories and organization and, um, and, and feeling and it kind of just pulls all that back. And, um, you know, I, I kind of think it's correlated to those weight issues as Chad always had gut problems, stomach issues. And, um, and I think, you know, when you're constantly in that, you've got cortisol pumping around all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes us really unwell, and I, and you know, it's not a topic that's unfamiliar, I guess, which is great these days. That discussion of, um, you know, um, too much anxiety in society, and and you know, our bodies are not not trained to have that much um, th- those as many triggers as we do today. And of mm. course, we could probably talk for hours about social media and television and mm-hmm. all all those sort of topics but um but yeah i think it's um it's really misunderstood and, and ang- a sort of untreated anxiety often leads to depression and um and you know i think depression's still kind of misunderstood too you know particularly clinical depression and what mm. that looks like but um yeah and of course you know i said that's you know part of my story is engaging with um d- drugs and alcohol over time and i didn't understand what it was doing for me um, which was sort of trying to numb. And, um, you know, I, I didn't just numb the bad feelings, I numbed the good, and it left me more detached. And I guess going back to that saying, the greatest predictor of mental health is connection.
0: Yeah, there's that um, the quote, uh, I think Johan Hari has put that out there recently, but, you know, the opposite of addiction isn't, you know, mm. rehabilitation, it's connection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, yeah. and you, when you said that, I mean, I sort of jotted that quote down. Connection is the greatest predictor of mental health. Our belief, one of the things that we we talk about all the time in in, in the how you go mate stuff that we post, is that people isolate. You know, people mm. isolate when they when their mental health is poor, and and uh, you know, it, it almost might be like the wounded animal trying to protect itself a little bit. But you know, we mm. isolate for a whole range of reasons, and. You know, if you haven't spoken to a mate for a couple of days, or you haven't, you know, normally you hear from someone every every other day, and you haven't heard from them for a while, um, mm. to give them a call because it, there's a very good chance. And even a conversation I had with our mutual friend Nath, who's been on on our uh, show a few times now, mm. you know, even that thing where he he talks about um, the people that he sponsors through AA, and mm. you know, if he, he he you know hears from them every day, but if he goes sort of two, three, four days without hearing from them. It's a pretty good chance they've fallen off the wagon because, for, you know, for yeah. lack of a better term, I apologise if that's not a term we use anymore. But, um, you know, they've they've kind of they've kind of lapsed because, you know, generally speaking, they've had a drink or they've done a drug and then are a little bit sort of ashamed to kind of go, yeah, I've actually relapsed and I I can't talk to you about it. So, mm. yeah, it's an it's an intriguing idea for me, but it, it's something that I've been sort of pushing for, and it really something I connect and resonates with me because pushing it for a long time. Because, yeah, we hide away when we when we're not well. We we you know that mm. self stigma, that internal stigma, just stops mm. us from you know connecting with people, and and that's that's my thing. Rather than have people go, oh, I am here if you need me. You know, if you know someone, if you you know, if you've got a mate that you haven't heard from for a couple of weeks, and you are going home, that's unusual don't, mm. don't send him the message that says, Hey, you know, I'm here if you need me, mate, you know, call him up and go, how are you going, mate? <laughs> you know, what, mm. are you, what are you up to? What are you doing?
1: Yeah. 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 That's, um, yeah, I guess as Nathan shared that one of the first things you do when you get into recovery from drugs and alcohol is, um, get phone numbers and start to connect with people. And it's a really good indicator of how you're going. And it's, it's one way you can catch people before they lapse is to sort of, do that kind of check-in um mm. and i'd say that about normal mental health as well and and that sort of declining is um sort of i mean the, the rooms of aa and na um give us that structure of sort of staying in contact is why meetings help mm. um because it sort of keeps you even if you know we we often say um if you're not feeling like going to the meeting and going to a meeting, that's the time to be going, you know, Mm. that's, um, that's, it's really important you do it anyway and just, um, and sort of sit through that discomfort because it's, I think that's the challenge with all mental health. It's sort of being able to identify I'm, I'm uncomfortable, something's wrong. And, Mm. um, instead of pulling away from it, um, whether you're drinking, using drugs, isolating, um, self-harming, um, it's it's sort of about well what I've found is I've had to sort of go oh I'm uncomfortable acknowledge it have awareness of it and then um, sort of sit sit with that a bit and mm. then take act it's all in been in the action it's sort of um, uh, taking that that sort of gap I guess I spoke about that it's, it's capitalising on the opportunity in that gap before it it gets too far gone. Mm. Um, and, and using that to sort of um, employ these um, strategies that that if you're lucky enough to get some help with mental health or or your drug and alcohol issue, um, give you give you a lot of freedom and choice.
0: So what um, you talked about maladaptive, you know, coping strategies before, and I guess we'll we'll, we'll segue this into what led you to SPP. What <laughs> Well, the, cuz there's a story here and I know it and I'm you know as much as you want to share go wherever you want to take this but um what what was the what what was the point where you kind of went all right this is it got to go let's let's get some help here
1: um how long do you have um about, no, about 45 I guess, more uh, minutes <laughs> <laughs> look I, I i guess um you know i'll I ended, I actually ended up in Northside, um, clinic, yep. uh, which was at Greenwich at the time first. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my first sort of contact with, um, sort of a f- formal mental health services. And, um, actually that's untrue. I was in hospital in the days before that, after, um, a, a suicide attempt of sorts or, or, or sort of strong suicidality, mm-hmm. not, you know, almost an attempt, I guess. And, um, And that led me to being um, going to Northside and six months later I went to SPP and both of those um, rehabilitation sort of programs have been life changing. Um, And I guess what led to it was um, I, you know, without going through a whole life story, I was suffering from um, the disease of alcoholism and addiction and and my mental health was had deteriorated to a point at which um, my usual coping strategy at the time drinking and um and some drugs was was not working anymore and um my life was in danger and mm. um, you know I was a normal kid who you know i started sort of drinking at fourteen like most of us do but mm-hmm. i was um i remember being almost fearful of um the loss of control, but um but sort of unable to also stop. And then I began to like it. Um and I was always I guess a binge drinker. Um I dabbled in some party drugs at sort of eighteen like we all do I guess or most <laughs> maybe <laughs> that's um that's uh not a sweeping statement, but like some of us do I should say. Yep. Um and that didn't really stick. I remember feeling really um it was uh, probably only about six month period. And I remember feeling a bit scared because, you know, the the way I'd feel after I'd had drugs in the days afterwards, I always felt really, um, really, really, really depressed. And, and that, that feeling really frightened me. And, mm. um, you know, I I, uh, I met my, my ex-husband at Scruffy Murphy's when I was 19, so that probably speaks volumes. But my 20s... Lock, my like we all that. do. Like... Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I, my, my, I think my marriage, which I got divorced at about... Um, 31. Um, I think my marriage held my drinking at bay a little bit. The need to sort of um, show up in my life. I had a decent career. Um, you know, I'd had study under my belt. And um, when when I got divorced, I kind of um, took the cap off my responsibility to, to to it took that lid off my need to be responsible to someone else. And um, and my drinking, you know, became less like well still binge drinking on weekends but I started to drink more daily Mm -hmm. um and I also tried cocaine for the first time I was reliving my 20s I think and um I'm kind of grateful for that because the cocaine brought me to my knees really a lot quicker than maybe the alcohol could have kept me um away in you know from from help for a lot longer I think but um Mm. cocaine made me um, when I drank, I blacked out, and cocaine um, fixed that for me. Oh. And so I latched on to that, and um, but it meant that I started drinking more. And I also, just like with alcohol, I couldn't control how much I was using cocaine. You know, I had I was on a six figure income in a in a really well paid um, government job. But I, uh, you know, about six months into using cocaine, I was using it every couple of days. Um, I was drinking every night, um, and you know at the time I didn't see a problem with it. Um, I was having fun as mm. I called it but looking back it was it was affecting my relationships um, my friend group was dwindling um, and I'd started drinking by myself and at home I, I sort of didn't want to go out anymore and um, because I couldn't drink the way I wanted to mm. um, and and that was heavily and um, what led to Northside was um, a really Heavy, heavy drinking session over a few days and a lot of um, a lot of cocaine and um, and yeah, a really awful situation. And I got to Northside and they told me I was an alcoholic and I had a substance abuse problem. And I was shocked, you know, I was absolutely <laughs> shocked. Um, I kind of thought I was going in there for some mental health help. And um, yeah. Yeah, it, I spent sort of six months in that um, six months. Sorry, six weeks in in Northside first time, and um, I learnt about the disease of alcoholism mm. and um, and how it played out in me. I was also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder at the time, uh, depression, major depression, mm-hmm. um, chronic anxiety. Um, you know, <laughs> a few little labels there to help me yeah. better understand the way I the way I functioned in the world and why um but it's taken it took a long time to start to digest what that really meant and I guess my natural um I naturally lean to sort of trying to learn all I can in order to fix a problem you know I I really I took six months off work um to sort of focus on recovery get myself Mm -hmm. better and and move on and get back to work and move on with my life and it you know as I've spoken to you about, it didn't quite turn out like that. But I, at about six months clean and sober, um, through the support of um, doing a Northside Day Program and attending meetings of AA and NA, um, I, you know, I got to that sort of miraculous <laughs> um, sort of goalpost in recovery, and and I decided to go in and work on some of my my trauma stuff at, at South Pacific, and mm. you know, it was a radically um, fascinating experience I guess sort of understanding but I still had that problem in that early recovery of not quite understanding why why this had happened why I felt this way and I had that real attitude of I'm going to learn all about this Hmm. mental health stuff and this borderline problem and this depression issue and this alcoholism issue and I'll I'll, I'll, you know learn how to fix it and I'll fix it like a Hmm. car and um and yeah that that didn't quite happen but um but I think without um, access to services like that, it would have been really hard to sort of pull that in.
0: It's an interesting perspective to me as well because um, <clears throat> I think a lot of people, when they get those diagnoses and they hear all those terms, you know, they the problem looks overwhelming, so they almost back away yeah. from it. Where they go, well, I, I can't, I can't possibly fix any of that. Yeah, you know, that's all too bit too much. So, to, and then I guess what I kind of was thinking, and where my head went when you were talking about that, was that that idea of like, well, you know, the happiness is a destination. You know, recovery is a destination. I'll I'll fix this, and mm. then I'll get on. You know, I'll get in front of it, and then life will be back to how it should be. Mm. Um, and not enough of us, I think, realize that it's you know, recovery is not a destination. You can mm. get to a point where you are back to, you know, for lack of a better term, normal, or you know, living your life mm. he- in a healthy way again. But you, you've—it's a constant process, isn't it? You've got to continually mm. keep on top of it; otherwise, it creeps up and and, and well, as you know, as you experience, bites bite you <laughs> on the yeah. ass again. You know.
1: Yeah, that's um, I, I think that's what I didn't see coming. I thought if I put be like at that time it was predominantly alcohol towards the last six months before i ended up in rehab the cocaine had become a big issue not just a fun thing i did um when i put those things down i expected to get better and i got profoundly worse um and and it's it's been a a sorely learned lesson that um that my mental health it's a bit like i've heard the analogy it's like diabetes Mm -hmm. um in the sense that I have a disease that's um, chronic, incurable, and fatal. Um, though You know, those three words were really hard to process because I wanted to fix i you know i didn't sort of believe it for a long time i sort Mm. of thought i can fix this you know (laughs) there are tools here i can address this fix it and move forward but Mm. it's like diabetes in the sense that i need to take my insulin every day i need to take i need to have a program every day to treat this disease and Mm. if i don't implement that program i get unwell again Mm. if i don't have my insulin I, um, you know, my sugar levels will go up steadily and I'll eventually, you know, through a lot of harm and losses, I might lose a leg to gangrene, I might um, start to have heart issues um, and I, I'll become quite unwell and eventually die. And, um, and that's a hard pill to swallow when you, you know, you usually don't rock up into rehab feeling good about your life. Um, you're, you're usually in a pretty bleak place. And I guess the difference for me was I didn't, Quite, like I hear a lot of people I know in recovery got to a point where they they had they had to, they wanted a change because the the alcohol the drugs the the mental health was so distressing to their life so damaging to their life that they they desperately sought out help. In my case, I kind of landed in hospital. Um, it wasn't a deliberate choice. Mm. Um, you know, I, I hit a pretty big rock bottom, but I. Um, it wasn't sort of as proactive as I've heard other people be. So I kind of had a reactive approach to, to the news of being alcoholic and, um, and, and all my mental health diagnoses. Mm. And and so my reaction was, Oh, okay. You know, you told me that the carburetor is gone and the starter motor needs fixing. All right. I'll um, tell me how to fix it. Mm. Um, where do I get the parts? And I guess the parts were, AA meetings, um, you know, the day program, I went in for relapse prevention admissions. And and as I mentioned, SPP later on, mm. but I guess what I learned, um, slowly was that I, I got, I got more and more unwell. I got 18 months clean and sober in my first recovery. And by the end of that period, I was self harming for the first time in my life. Mm. Um, I was in and out of psych wards because of that. Um, I was suicidal constantly uh, because the thing I'd been using to numb my problem for so long was gone. Mm. And I guess alcoholism is probably one of the worst named diseases in the world because the symptoms of alcoholism, that drinking itself or or using drugs is merely a... um, A symptom. It's a it's a treatment for what actually ails me. And what ails me is that I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. I have um, a lot of developmental immaturity. Um, I have this um, profound and constant um, thought of self. I'm I'm sort of encapsulated by how I feel and react to the world. And a lot of the stuff I've spoken about, I guess, and and alcohol. Even when I binge drank, you know, I didn't, I sort of listened to the stories in rehab and AA and I was like, I don't, I didn't drink every day for a long time. It mm. was only recent. And being a binge drinker kind of made me think I wasn't necessarily an alcoholic. I c- kind of told myself in that first recovery, this little underlying voice was saying, maybe, maybe this isn't true. And, mm. and we often say in meetings to look for the similarities, not the differences. And, mm. and I did. I looked for the similarities because I found this recovery community that I loved, you know, sober alcoholics are amazing. (laughs) Um, And I, but I also heard the differences and I, I, I saw how I could disclude myself. Mm. Um, And I guess the, the difficult um, part that added to that was that although I was desperately trying to fix this problem, the, the the treatment for alcoholism is, I guess, this program, but it also requires me to sort of understand I can't control the world, everyone in it, and myself. Hmm. And that's kind of what I was trying to do as an alcoholic. If everyone would just do what I needed them to do, then a bit like that analogy earlier of going into work and feeling like things weren't okay. I needed everyone to sort of cheer up, be okay. And I I learned to be very um, adaptive in making that happen. Um, But generally you know the outcome generally was that things didn't go my way and um and that wasn't a conscious sort of uh, role I played it's something I've been able to learn on reflection but Mm. uh, the mistake I guess I made in my first recovery was that and and it's not a mistake sorry um it's more it's been part of this process was that Mm. trying to think my way out of this trying to learn and intellectualize recovery hmm. um, was never going to fix me. It's been a process of learning to um, to sort of take to keep things in the day we talk a lot about one day at a time, um, taking the next right action and really pulling it back. And I spent like because of I guess the disease itself, I, it's really uh, you know alcoholism is the, one of the biggest killers of people worldwide hmm. um, and, and addiction. You know, for a good reason, in that it's a really hard disease to treat, and you've got to sort of let go of all those really embedded coping processes. And and you know that you'll, people may know there's um a lot of speak of God in those rooms or a higher power, and what that. Come to understand that essentially means is i have to let go of trying to control everything i have to understand that i can't do this on my own i can't control if the sun comes up today or if mm. my ex boyfriend wants to be with me or if my friend didn't come to the party you know and all those little factors in life that made me constantly feel different and separate and clamor and attached to needing to be um accepted and and loved and um, you know, I, I had a relapse and I um, it was on the back of being made redundant, you know, which um, from, you know, this job I desperately loved, but I also desperately clung to that job as part of who I was. You mm-hmm. know, I was acceptable in this world because I had a good job, because I had a, uh, I'd had a home that I'd um, bought and owned and um, all these things outside of myself that made me think I was... A functioning person in this world, and it. it uh, when I lost that job, and I realised I was so mentally unwell at the time, um, with the self harm and suicidality, I knew I wouldn't be able to get a job at that level again. And and through various circumstances, it led to a relapse. And and part of that was that I'd stopped doing the work in the program each day, and you know that that relapse kept me um, out for six months. And by the end of that, I was a very sick sick young woman i mm. um i i often say that i felt i'd lost my humanity because i kind of just gave up on life and i really threw myself into the fire of, of my addiction and alcoholism and and i was unemployed um, I'd, had, I'd sold my apartment, um, I was living in a pretty crappy flat at the time and, and you know, I didn't leave the house for the, the last three months of that relapse. Um, I was drinking three bottles of vodka a day, using you know, probably 10 grams of cocaine a day, spending my, um, my payout for my job. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember getting that payout and thinking, oh, I can buy another house for this mm-hmm. and a little voice in my head was like, you won't be buying anything and right. I, I kind of there was this there's always been this sort of subconscious that knew that wasn't going to happen and and one of the best things I heard at Northside the first time which I didn't understand yet it was a wonderful man who worked there Andy um, uh, in, in drug and alcohol and he said that the greatest the foremost strategy of alcoholics and addicts is deceit the deceit that flows out mm. to our family and friends and uh, employers and loved ones, as we try and protect that thing we hold most dear—the alcohol, the drugs, the, the, the that deceit that helps us continue to function in this world without having to stop what we what we need, um, our medicine—and but more so the deceit that flows in as we lie to ourselves about what the drugs and alcohol are doing for us, not mm. to us—and that that line has been. Um, something that's taken me a long time to understand the lies I told myself, you know, I'd convinced myself, um, of, of a lie well before I told you about it, you know, that I came to believe those lies, you know, my drinking wasn't that bad. Um, oh, that, you know, that blackout, um, wasn't as long as I thought it was. I didn't have that outcome. I, I lost my job because of X, Y, Z. Um, it wasn't something I did. Mm -hmm. Um, that horrific shame that comes with abusing drugs and alcohol uh, and the actions that happen um, is is easily sort of coated with this um, level of deception that I I required to still function. And uh, I I ended up going to a long-term rehab. Um, I was in rehab for about a year, and that was a really difficult process. I was in a very different um, environment with um, 140 other adults at alcoholics and addicts in this particular rehab up up on the central coast and um, unfortunately I, I I came out of there and I relapsed again and and that last relapse saw me you know I picked up um, hard drugs um, IV use of drugs mm. and um, and in particular ice mm. and because um, I was in a lot of pain and and that year in rehab I, I can realize now what I'd lost my job, I'd relapsed, and I lost my recovery community. Um, I'd already lost my old drinking buddies, so I was very much alone when I went into that rehab. And and in in that process, I kind of felt like I lost the rest. I was away from Sydney, away from my home. Mm. Um, It was hard for people to come and visit, and I felt like I lost my family and everything else that I guess I clung to to make up my identity. And I remember feeling um, very much like with no one and nothing and i had no place in this world and nowhere Mm. to go and um and you know my mental health really deteriorated again and um when i got out i i i drank the day i got out and i had a suicide attempt i don't remember i woke up in a paddy wagon um terrified (laughs) i was in there for five hours and no one came Mm. no one told me what had happened and eventually um i was so distressed um they uh, knocked me out to get me out of there, and I, I, they were outside a hospital waiting for a mental health bed. And I came to in this hospital with, you know, no shoes, no wallet, no phone, and um, and nowhere to live. I was, I had, I, I had nowhere to go. I was homeless, and um, and I ran into someone I'd been in rehab with who was using ice, and I picked up ice, which is something that seems so ridiculous, <laughs> you know, if any, if. If I, if it's you ever bloody. asked me to predict that, <laughs> you, I would not in a million years have thought I'd be using ice. IB use of ice, and yeah. um, and from the first time I used it, I I didn't like it. I remember thinking, "This, what is this? Um, it's crap," you know. Mm. It didn't, and but I couldn't stop from that very first use. I could not stop, and um, and my entire sort of life fell away. I lost, you know, I lost every sense of who I was. And, and I, I was, it was like a slow death. I was, I was, I didn't want to live anymore. And I just threw myself into this really frightening world of of ice use. And, um, and it took a year for me to get, get back. And, and, I'm. it's a miracle that I got out of that alive. There were so many situations, car accidents, arrests, um, dangerous people really sexually violent um Mm. world to be in um as well as physically violent and and emotionally violent Mm. um but you know it's it's a very it's a very strange drug that does some pretty awful stuff and um i lost half my body weight you know my like the hair on my body stopped growing. I had wounds. I was in, in. I spent six weeks in a high secure psych ward. Um, they thought I had Parkinson's because I, I was very, very unwell. Um, you know, I was in and out of um, the local hospital quite a lot. And I wasn't. You know, the reality is I wasn't treated very well either. I was seen as a junkie mm-hmm. and um, and worthless, and often just thrown back out on the street. Um, you know that's where I can really appreciate the fact that I got help in those early days. I had somewhere eventually to come back to, um, because I'd I'd had enough money to have private health to go to a go to those rehabs in the early days. And um, my experience in the public system was really, really bleak. And I was mm-hmm. living in a community on the coast that had high, high drug use. So I I, I empathise with the hospital system. They saw a lot of violence and, and really awful um, situations because of that community so I, I can understand why they they had that um, the difficulty in, in addressing those those issues but um, it was a pretty bleak time and I'm really grateful that I got out. Like more than great. I have I'm alive. Yeah. That's that's the starting point and um and I have a life today.
0: What um what got you out? What 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 was the was it a single point? was it a series of events? what actually got you out of there?
1: Um, about six months in um, I got arrested, which was a, a a first for me in my life mm. um, growing up, my best friend was a detective I certainly wasn't on the <laughs> that side of the tracks um, mm. you know i I got arrested and um, and I got charged with some pretty serious stuff and that that initially got me clean and sober for a little while, a couple of months. Mm. And I tried from my, I was living in a really rundown caravan in a really rundown caravan park, um, on a freeway, (laughs) not nothing (laughs) lovely on the beach. Um, and everyone around me, everyone I knew was a drug user. Mm. Um, and I tried to sort of connect back with some of my recovery community in Sydney, but, um, but it wasn't. It wasn't very easy or successful, and I don't. I, my spirit was pretty broken, and um, uh, and I relapsed again, which, you know, it tells me the strength of this disease. I was on bail, and I picked up. It, it could have landed me in prison, and and I'm. I don't think I would have survived very well in prison. Um. Uh, and I ended up in a my that living situation fell apart. It got much, much worse after I picked up again. And, um, and, you know, I ended up in a really horrific living situation. Um, and, and then no living situation. I, um, I ended up pregnant to a really violent, nasty person. Um, I ended up homeless, um, My car and everything I owned had been stolen. (laughs) I had I had nothing really left except Mm -hmm. the clothes on my back. My car was gone. Um, My you know my bed was gone, and um, and I needed to to sink or swim, I guess. And it Mm -hmm. it um I didn't you know I don't there wasn't a point where I decided I want recovery. I'm going to find it again. Then I kind of just. A friend called me, and I sort of filled her in on what had been happening, and um, and she offered me a room in Sydney. She she was a good friend I'd met in recovery sort of four years earlier, and um, she said, "Come and stay with me," and and it gave me somewhere to go. Um, and at the time, I hadn't like it didn't. I was in such dire circumstances. Um, that I, it wasn't about recovery. It was just about getting to safety, kind of. Mm. I guess we you learn to be a good survivor in that world. But mm. um, but I sort of run out of um, run out of moves, and you know I was facing getting an abortion. Um, I would tried to get. Um, I got sober initially with the pregnancy. You know, my adult mind told me that would be a good idea. <laughs> if I have a baby, that'll save me. Mm. And um, and in getting clean and sober, I I. it suddenly occurred to me about two months later what are you doing like I I must you know the insanity that came with with that thought process and it was a really difficult decision because you know I'm at this point I'm 36 and I've divorced I don't have any kids Um, I'm unemployed Um, I'm a drug addict on the streets of the central coast and Mm -hmm. um and, you know, my best thinking at the time said, have a baby, that'll change your life. You mm-hmm. know, maybe there's no good time. You know, I spent half of my marriage holding back on having kids because I didn't want to bring them up in a difficult marriage. And suddenly that, that was my best idea. And um, I'll, I'll always remember a, one of the lovely um, women who lived downstairs who, you know, was in the same bleak situation as me said, it, her best advice was use drugs if you use you'll know if you want the baby and because um, I wasn't going through with the abortion um and I don't you know I, I don't really know why but um but I heard I heard some wisdom in that strangely and and mm-hmm. I did and it led to some it was not good <laughs> led some really um in the next couple of weeks things went from horrifically bad to absolutely absolutely worse and um mm-hmm. I, yeah, I made it to Sydney. I got a very horrifically traumatic abortion and, um, you know, it's hard to share this stuff, but mm. um, that's what it took. That uh, I And my friend had a room and I went to her house and I laid in this room in the dark almost for about six weeks. My poor friend didn't, <laughs> I don't think she knew what she was getting herself into, but I'd been off my, my antidepressants and mood stabilizers for months. Mm. Um, I was recovering from this use of ice and and another drug ghb i'd use mm-hmm. them both prolifically during that time at, at really high levels even the the locals who had been using those drugs for years and years and years used to say to me slow down you're, you're messed up you mm-hmm. know and, and and that tells me i guess about the level of um what addiction does to me what those drugs are doing to me i'd given up on life and I'd given up on even trying to kill myself and, and so I just destroyed myself and everything around me and mm. um, I when I got back to Sydney and I stayed with that friend I, I eventually went back to rehab and um, because I needed to work out how to live again mm. <laughs> and um, to have a, a routine in my day I just uh, it, that same feeling of I have I don't know what to do. Like this real feeling of I I had no idea what to do. How do I move forward in life? Mm. Mm. And that, that pervading feeling of terror in the listless, lost feeling um, is what sent me back out those times to relapse. This mm. terror that I didn't have anything anchoring me in the world.
0: Mm. Having to learn how to live again. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. it strikes me, and you know, again, it's video psychology, but even having to learn how to live for the first time, like... Strip mm. away everything that you've ever felt, and you know, going back to even your childhood, but having to learn how to go. Okay, how do I actually do this? Because I've never ever done it really well, so to speak. Mm. What and even when you thought, because I think you know, you're saying earlier on about you know, I had the house and I had the nice, you know, the the good job, and the you know, everyone looked at me and thought, oh wow, there's Amy, she's so together and so successful, but. Mm even then that potentially just you sitting there going, well, these are the things they tell me I should have and I've got them, but I still don't actually know what to do. Like I don't actually know how to to live life or how to be a human on the planet.
1: And the the funny thing is, when I think back to how I felt in that time, like I get, today I get a sense of those feelings I had when I was, I had bought this beautiful apartment in the middle Mm. of Sydney, you know, Mm. on the water in this beautiful place and mm. I had all you know the all the newest furniture and des, mm. you know designer clothes and so many shoes mm. um, and all this stuff. I remember that constant grasping, you know I, I would shop online for things and I didn't even know what to buy but I'd just desperately buy more and that feeling that I had of like I can remember this feeling of it's like that deep that that deep voice in me that was like, this isn't working. Like mm. I, I don't feel okay. I still don't feel okay. I've, mm. I've ticked all the boxes. Why don't I feel okay? Mm. Um, and I, I felt almost, and it, you know, it's not quite the comparison, but having relapsed and just completely let go of any attachment to material things or mm. the right people or the right pers- husband or the right kind of life, there was a lot of actual freedom in that in a way. Mm. Um, and I don't suggest anyone um, who might be in recovery attempt relapsing to fix their life. It certainly didn't. It didn't I, ice is not, ice I is not sure.
0: the way to mental health recovery.
1: <laughs> no, no, definitely not. And and I really mean it when I say I'm lucky to have survived. I'm still sort of um, starting to understand how miraculous that is. You know, mm. I had a high... I, hit the rock wall of the M1 doing 140 Ks an hour. You know, I had another head on with a telegraph pole. Um, you know, I had people, you know, a, a death warrant out like that world. You know, I used to sort of laugh at all those people and be like, calm down, you're not on underbelly, but, um, but they kind of were.
2: <laughs> and I,
1: I didn't realize that I was on underbelly with them. Yeah. Um, and so I, I never, I had no protective factors in place at all. Um, and, you know, not just those events that could have take easily taken my life, but my my drug use. You know, I wouldn't sleep for 13, 14 days, and I'd have about two days sleep, and then I'd be up again, and I didn't eat. Um, you know, even even now, my hair's starting to get thicker, and um, and I realize, you know, it's because I was starved. I was starving for so long, mm. um, and you know that that period, um, I guess showed me that, um, I'm capable of living, living through difficulty, pretty, um, pretty much anything didn't... I'd say. Yeah. Um, you know, I, but I'm like, you know, I don't have to suffer like mm. that to have a good life. And I also don't need, um, stuff to try and fill that hole inside me, that, that desperate sort of emptiness that, that pervaded, and that's probably the best word, actually. That emptiness and disconnection that had been in me since I was a kid. That mm. feeling of not being right. No, no amount of things or money or cars or husbands or friends fix that feeling. Um, it's been a what they call, you know, it's been an inside job. And mm. um, I can only, you know, we. I don't have any regrets in my past today. Um, it, it took what it took for me to me to get well, and it doesn't take. That much for other people um, you know it, it, everyone's got their own sort of story on this journey mm. I guess I choose to share um, the depth of that um, to show people that it doesn't matter where you get to you can come you, you can you can heal you can come into recovery whether it be for mental health or drugs and alcohol um, or anything else on that spectrum um, eating disorders. You know, I've, I've got, I've had eating disorder issues as well, um, and I'm still addressing a lot of this stuff. But if you told me, you know, if you told me even five years ago that I would be happy, happier um, being single, having no kids, having been unemployed for the last three years, um, and and really, you know, lockdown for me, I, I feel so lucky. Lockdown, I, you know. It, it hasn't dramatically affected me mm. um, because I'm—I've got the structures in place and the support and and the program in my life to to sort of tackle those things today. I can sit in my own company <laughs> in my room and and be okay with that. And mm. um, and not every day is like that. Like I I still um, I still have days where I'm, I get stuck in bed with depression and and, um, and I have days where I'm um, I don't, I don't get it right. And I don't, you know, I, I can be a harsh critic of myself. Hmm. Um, you know, up until probably six months ago, I still had a lot of cravings and, um and distress, And, you know, I'm still treating my borderline and, and I'm still on medication. But I guess the secret I've found um, is that it's, it's about this sort of middle path. You know, I've, I've always lived in extremes um, hmm. and, and, and in black and white um, sort of thinking and, and, each day is a sort of practice in trying to find that middle ground that, you know, I kind of say I found God in, in the end, you know, I can feel uncomfortable today and I can survive it and I'll be okay. And I can, I can do something about that. And I, I, one of the first books I read when I went to that um, first rehab five years ago was a book by Viktor Frankl, um, who was a psychiatrist who lived through Auschwitz and uh, it's called man's search for meaning. And in that he, he said between the stimulus and the response, there is a gap. And in that gap is our, um, our freedom and our choice. And um, that's come to sort of represent um, everything to me. You know, as long as I don't pick up a drug or a drink today, as long as I sort of get up and do the next right thing, as long as I pause and um, have some awareness, um, learn to have some awareness about what's happening within me, I get a choice. And the life up until my life up until now, I haven't felt like I had choice, and that's, I guess, been the nature of this disease. Um, It's, uh, it, it, alcohol and drugs have been the great remover in my life, Mm. Um, and um, they've they've numbed the joy and the pain, and um, and you know I call my addict brain Ursula. um, uh, Okay. is always with me, I guess. Yep. Um, it's just that I've learned to sort of quiet in that voice yeah. and, and see it for what it is and be kind and compassionate to that part of myself that mm. um, occasionally does want to sort of destroy things and um, and pull me away from sitting in discomfort. Um, mm. But, you know, I think we spoke earlier about what's different about life today. What-
0: yeah, yeah, that was going to be my question. What What's different about yeah. this, this, this time around?
1: Yeah, I guess, I mean... I can talk about the practical things that I, I attend a meeting of AA or NA every day, sometimes two at the moment. And that's not going to be a, a requirement for the rest of my life, but I, but I put everything else down and I focused on my recovery and I created space and time for it. I, I do um, a DBT program. Um, I do a day group. I do my meetings. I have a sponsor. I've worked the steps um, of, of Alcoholics Anonymous and through that process, I get up each morning, um, I sit down, I meditate, um, I ask the, the universe, um, universal energy to sort of give me a good day and keep me free of this, um, this disease today. And, mm-hmm. um, and I do the same at night. Um, I sit down and meditate and have some deliberate time and space with myself and, um, mm-hmm. and, and I, co- I connect with people um, you know, I connect with them through my meetings. I can, I, I call people in the program. I call friends. I make a couple of phone calls a day, uh, and that helps me be other focused. And, um, and that's been the big measure, I guess, is um, I've always um wanted to be of use in this world and help others. And um, and I've been so trapped within th- these illnesses that I haven't been very effective in that. But today, I just take. I make sure that my actions, each each of my, my actions are the ground on which I stand and I think that, that was the difference this time is I just started to take some of the actions um, and not real in the discomfort of, of being clean and sober. I sort of had some radical acceptance of um, I'm not going to feel okay <laughs> um, and I can get up and go for a walk um, and some days I won't do that and I, I will feel bad. Um, I think the... that fear that I spoke about earlier has, has kept me away from that. And, you know, life's different today. I can sleep. I'm physically healthy. You know, Mm. I have a clean, tidy, lovely home. Um, I'm not destroyed by my feelings, you know, Mm. that I, I, I understand that feelings and thoughts aren't facts, you know? Um, and, Mm. and, you know, for a long time, I, you know, people tell you all this stuff in recovery. And so I think about that, but, um, but to actually sort of practice that understanding in the moment, you know, so I have days where I feel really panicked and uncomfortable and distressed mm. by something. And, um, and I feel this sort of creeping feeling of um, impossibility. I can't survive this. And, mm. and I have now um, skills and, and tools I can use to sort of notice that and have that pause, that gap. Um, You know, I've got acceptance about what's happened in my life, Um, and I get it quicker about things that do happen. You know, there's always life on life's terms. Um, You know, I I actually trust myself and the world and the universe and the people around me. I trust that I'm going to, um, that everything's going to be okay, and I think that's what's made a significant difference is I guess that idea of faith I, I don't have to just trust um, my ability to manage the world um I just let go a little and I trust that um life will unfold as it will mm. and I'll be okay um yeah I guess in that I see my challenges um and and I sort of I can confront them without um having to run in fear um whether that's emotionally or physically I guess mm. but um yeah, and you know, the first recovery and and leading up to that, I thought about dying every day, multiple times a day. Mm. The idea that I just can't survive, and I, and I think that's been the realization. Is I've always felt like that. This feeling of I can't survive, I can't, I can't do this. I can't. I don't want to live anymore. And and it's miraculous to me that that doesn't. I don't think like that anymore. Mm. Um, but I had to have help, and and it's. it's um, It's only something I've been able to do with the support of, you know, good medical help, um, good program for for my recovery through, um, you know, a twelve step program and um, and 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 routine has kind of been a big part of it. And my mum used to say to me, "Just get a routine; it'll all be better." And um, (laughs) I used to be like, "Screw you! (laughs) This is bigger than that." But um, but she was kind of right. Um. It's kind of showing up for myself each day, pushing past yeah. that discomfort and just and following through. And um, yeah, I'm probably talking too
0: much. <laughs> <laughs> You're perfect, talking the perfect amount. It's um, it's, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And uh, look, I usually ask um, I usually ask people what their go tos are in terms of supporting their mental health.
1: The only thing I'd say is if you you know if there are people out there who who have that feeling of not being quite okay or they feel that. Deep sort of frightening loneliness that comes with not really knowing what's wrong. Hmm. Um, I spent years in my twenties going to my GP, sort of trying to say that I didn't know what it was, but hmm. um, I, you know I knew I maybe I need to see a psychologist. A psychiatrist. Like I knew something was wrong, and and I tried over the years to see psychologists. Like it, it wasn't that I'd had no contact, but I never. Um, I never kind of found the right person or the right place, and it took that more extreme enter into rehab. But um, there are a lot of more resources out there today. Um, and mental health, I guess, I saw as, as a failure. Like, it would be mm. unacceptable to me to have those kind of issues in the world mm. I've painted for myself. But, um, but there's a lot of courage in, in confronting that the fact that you don't feel okay and to, and to ask for help and, and, you know, without wanting to sound too cheesy, it's kind of the first step is sort of saying I need some help and having a look at what's out there. And there's, you know, I've, I've had, you know, that sort of more acute system to help. Um, but there's a lot of gray in between and, um, and speaking to other people, you know, even support groups on Facebook have been a help over the years. Mm. Um, and if, you know, as you said, if if you can sort of see that in someone else, um, you know, gently, gently sort of mm. just connecting with those people. I think that's connection's been the biggest thing.
0: I and, guess. I, and, and, even, and it's
1: what I least like to do. Even today, I, I, you know, I, I go to call a friend and I'm like, oh, God, I don't want to talk to anyone. And I make the call anyway, you know. Yeah. I don't want to talk to someone and I make the call anyway. And, and then I feel better.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and no, I I was sort of thinking as you were talking then as well, uh, you know, um, you, you know, asking for help. But uh, the big the big core message that we have is in how you're going, mate. Is is about you know, recognize rather than saying I'm here for you if you need me. You know, give mm. me a call if you need anything, mate. Give me a call. Um, mm. You know, if you know your mate's going through a tough time, give him a call the next day. But if you're mm. that if you're that person when your friend says, "Can I do anything for you?" Mm. say yes. You know. Mm. And, and not even about asking for help, but when the support is offered to you, go, okay, Yes, mate, you can. Um and, and for someone like yourself, if you're saying that to someone, can I help you? Can I support you? Um I think you probably have experienced just about every single way that a person can be supported, both negatively mm. and positively. Um mm. if if it's out if you know, you've probably forgotten more about seeking support for addiction and mental health than most people will ever know. So you know, mm. I'm, I'm pretty sure you'd have a few really good ideas, <laughs> and yeah. a few really good. Yeah, you could try this, and don't do ice, <laughs> mm, yeah, because <laughs> that's yeah. not the way to mental health. You know, stability. That's not going to help you at all.
1: Exactly. But yeah, I think the hard thing is it took me a long time to see something was, you know, that there, there was actually a problem mm. that I wasn't just dysfunctional or, or um, you know, just a useless person. Um, mm. but uh, yeah, there's there's been a lot of people who in, in this period, I guess, who have asked, you know, tried to offer help and I often haven't wanted it. And I Mm. think, as you said, that, that kept, I didn't know how to use that help or Mm. let it in. Mm. Um, And I think that's half the problem with people with mental health. They think, or I thought I was worthless and unlovable. And so I couldn't even acknowledge that people actually cared and, Mm. um, and, um, it was the fact that people kept asking, and so that's you know that's what I do. I call friends and ask them how they're going, and um, and you know instead of as you said, just saying give me a call yeah. if you need need to talk about it. Sometimes it's just um, is holding that space for other people to um to not be okay, and um and and as you know as we're doing here, sharing the fact that maybe we're not okay sometimes, yeah. and, and normalizing that. Um, yeah. I think has been um, having this stuff normalised, has been radical in changing um, my experience with myself and, and life.
0: I, 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 listening to you talk, and and I, I'll ask you this question rather than th- tell you this is what I think, do you <laughs> get the sense that just hearing you sort of talk, you know, that, that first in, in the Northside Clinic where you go going, right, six weeks, I'll just go in, sort some stuff out, take some time off, we'll be good. <laughs> Do you get the sense that your recovery has taken this long and you have relapsed this many times and I asked you off here and we kind of touched on it you know what's different this time? Do you get the sense that you it took this long cuz it just needed to take this long? Um, like it just it was so you were, it was so complex it just that you needed to do all that stuff.
1: I think I made it harder than it needed to be in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> And, and no, it didn't. Um, we talk about having low or high bottoms, which isn't a physical reference. Mm. It's a, um, you know, in terms of sort of rock bottoms. And when I, you know, what I d- didn't realise is when I got to recovery, I, I deserved my chair in that room. You know, I, I, mm. I
2: had,
1: I had qual- well and more than qualified for, for that um, that position. But the nature of of this disease is that relapse is part of it because it's. Um, it's, it's a disease of relapse. It's a disease of um, keeping us separate. Um, and, and it's not just, you know, I, I drink and drug because I'm uncomfortable. I become bio- I'm become biologically wired to do that. You know, there are functional MRIs that actually show that brains of alcoholics and addicts are different in terms of
2: hmm.
1: um, to, to normal brains because we... we we reach out for this, this substance because, our you know, there's a part of our brain called the nuclear accumbens. It's the reward centre. It's the pleasure centre, but mm. it also helps us survive. It tells us we need food to eat. We need to drink water. We need to seek um, companionship. Um, it, it's the survival part of the brain, and that, that part of the brain gets hijacked, and it tells us that drugs and alcohol are what's primarily important. Um, you know, the dopamine it, you get from ice is... 1,200% higher than what you might get from the best day of your life, you know, the best meal of your life, the best falling in love. It's, it's that, and you, that tells your brain, I need I need this to survive. Alcohol's about 300%, more um, cocaine's about 600. There's a literal biological part of this disease that, that keeps mm. us in it. And that drive, you know, when you get clean and sober, it takes a long time for your brain to, um, stabilise again for you to get pleasure out of normal activities. And um, so you're you're wired to fail. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're wired to fail in recovery. And it takes it takes a lot in that those that early part of recovery to stay there. Um, because that, you know, that not just the fact that we the biologically biologi- driven to do that, but the shame that, you know, we say once you've got a bit of recovery in you and you go back out to drink or drug. Um, it's never the same again and, it, and it's very true in the sense that you kind of can see yourself coming you know what you're doing <laughs> is going to kill you and you can't stop and it's that um, that powerlessness I guess that you know the 12-step programs talk about coming to terms with the fact that I am completely powerless once I pick up um, a drug or a drink and the choice is in that gap before and um, but that choice is only facilitated by um, engaging with help. Um, it's, it would be very unlikely you'd be able to do that on your own, um, on your own power. And, um, uh, yeah, I guess to answer your question is, um, I don't, I don't think it could have happened any differently for me. That was just the nature of my disease. And there's no guarantee I'm going to stay clean and sober. You know, if I start to think I'm doing okay and I step away from those things that treat my disease, I'll relapse again. It's Mm. guaranteed, Mm. um,
0: so the secret that is, is the, just keep working the program.
1: Yeah, and that that idea of one day at a time. I guess you know, in before recovery, I was very much about okay, what's next? You know, mm. um, how do I elevate my life to the next level? Because mm. everything sort of gets a bit grey and dull, um, and doesn't doesn't fill that sort of emptiness. And and you know, it's miraculous today. I'm like, I've got today. I have I have some plans, of course, but I'm, I don't cling to them. Mm. Um, you know. I, I live in each day. I make the most of the fact that I get another day on this planet. Mm-hmm. Um, I try and be of use in this world and help other people. As my prime, that's my primary purpose in life is to, to be of use and help other people. And, and that's a very core part of recovery. Um, mm-hmm. I treat, you know, and what's behind that is I treat my disease not just so I, you know, I can feel better, but so that I can be of use in this world and and have a purpose that's intrinsic, um, and and the freedom that comes with coming to know yourself through recovery, um, is uh, is what allows the freedom of staying in recovery. But it's it's a daily job, um, and uh, and they they you know, recovery can promise a life beyond your wildest dreams, and I. You know what you think that might look like at the start of recovery can be very different. But if I can have peace in my day, and joy and and just contentment, that's incredible to me. Um, and um, you know, I I wish I it, I hadn't had to lose as much as I did. I wish I'd be, there's a lot of people who come into recovery and they get it earlier. Um, they they don't. Um, they don't have to go through as much pain others do and and a lot don't survive you know that the percentages of people who survive um, not just active addiction um, but but even once you get into recovery the numbers are pretty low and mm-hmm. um, and it's uh, trying to have some trust that other people might know a little bit better right now when you're really unwell and um, and trying to trying to sort of just get through the next 10 minutes in early recovery is sort of Re- releasing the reins a bit and uh, and letting others in.
0: Well, um, here's to peace and joy and contentment and mm. feeling satisfied and staying sober.
1: Yeah, indeed. And um, thank you very much. I, I, I think your program is wonderful, and um, and it's a sign well, of where hopefully things will I can, continue.
0: I can tell you, I think it just got a little bit better. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks.